Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast covering documentary film. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I talk to the crusading attorney for women's rights, Gloria Allred. At age 76, she has a long career of high-profile clients, from the family of Nicole Brown to Donald Trump's accusers. Now Allred is the subject of a new documentary on Netflix called Seen Allred by directors Sophie Sartain and Roberta Grossman. I'm here today with two more women who allege that they were victims of Bill Cosby. Tonight, Bill Cosby was scheduled to perform in Bakersfield, California, but that appearance was, quote, postponed. Mr. Cosby thinks that this will soon be over and that no more women will come forward. He is very wrong. The filmmakers began several years ago, long before the Me Too movement grew massive. For anyone who knows Allred as a TV pundit, this documentary reveals many more layers. It traces her rise from being a single mother with few resources into a powerhouse champion for women, the LGBT community, and other minorities. It's a timely portrait that includes ongoing cases. I'm attorney Gloria Allred, and today I'm here in Washington, D.C. for the Women's March on Washington. I'm honored to be able to be here with accusers of President Trump, who were courageous enough to speak out about what they said was their truth about Mr. Trump. Allred's prominence in the media comes with a heavy backlash as the film documents. Whatever she's bringing forth, there ought to be automatic doubt about it. Why you have to hire Gloria Allred and have a press conference other than looking for a payday? She's been fodder for comedians, like this Saturday Night Live skit titled Ask Gloria Allred. Karen from Boston asks, is there anything you won't do to push your ugly mug in front of a camera? I'd have to think about that. But I guess my answer would be no. Allred is more comfortable talking about her cases than her personal life, but the filmmakers help us understand what fuels her drive. I hosted Allred last week for a New York screening at my Stranger Than Fiction series. Our conversation was recorded with a live audience. She had just gotten off a plane from Miami, but was full of energy. I asked her if this film felt different from other media she'd done. You know, it took me two years to decide if I would do it because I kept telling them there were various restrictions or I have confidentiality with my clients so they can't listen to conversations between the two of us or however many uh, clients and myself. They can't ask me about legal strategy and so forth. But uh, other than that, uh, finally we decided we would do it when we finally agreed, then just about, I don't know, a couple months later, suddenly the whole Bill Cosby story broke. And it went from there. We get a sense in watching this film that uh, you weren't always the easiest interview subject. Well, no, not personally, because I'm a person who uh, prefers to talk about issues and uh, not that comfortable talking about myself. I, I care about issues, and I feel if I'm taking space for myself, I'm not talking about the important issues that really matter to most people. But finally, they said to me, look, 
people have to understand why you do what you do, why you are so committed to it, why you have a passion for justice. And of course, it's because of my own life experience, because I learned very little about any of this, the rights that women don't have, the rights that minorities, gay, lesbian, transgender, the rights that African Americans don't have. I learned very little about that in, in school. So uh, I said, okay. You know, we see people in this film who make jokes at your expense and mm -hmm. who are dismissive of you. I wonder if, if any of those people have ever apologized over the years. They haven't apologized, but many of, well, many of them have come in and become my clients. <laughs> <laughs> and they have said, oh, we're so sorry that we said what we said about you. Now I, you know, we need you, I need you. Will you forgive me? Do you feel you could represent me? And I say, of course, because it really, it's not about their politics. It's about seeing if I'm able to help them with their particular legal problem. So I understand that sometimes people, you know, I, I, I always say if they're calling me names, I feel I want, I've won, because if they had a good argument against what I was saying, they would give it. But if they don't have a good argument, then they just call me names. So I feel as though, in a way, they've hoisted up the white flag of surrender. I know I've won my argument. So that's true for people in many houses, including the White House. We see in the film the, the case of uh, Summer Zervos. Uh, yes. And uh, I'd read, I think, in the newspaper in December that that a judge was trying to decide whether that case could effectively go forward while Trump is in office. Can you update us on what's happening in that sure, case? Sure, thanks for asking. And let me just give everyone a little background. So we know that the Access Hollywood tapes, of course, were broadcast during the campaign. And then a few days after that, uh, in the debate with Hillary Rodham Clinton and then candidate Trump, Anderson Cooper asked uh, then Mr. Trump, if in fact he had done what we heard him say that he had done in the Access Hollywood tapes. He denied ever having done that. He said that was locker room talk. After that, a number of women started coming out. Some contacted the uh, New York Times and other publications. Some contacted me. We then... Uh, you know, began to come forward with some of the women, like Summer and some others that I represent, three others. Um, Mr. Trump, at, the, at some point then, called the, all the women who spoke out publicly, he said they're all liars, what they said was fabrication and fiction. Um, that, of course, was very upsetting, as you could see, I mean, to many of the women, but uh, ultimately, uh, he was elected by the Electoral College, and then I called on him to retract and to acknowledge that what some of the women, particularly Summer, said was true. He failed to retract, and so therefore, three days before the inauguration, we filed a lawsuit, a defamation lawsuit, right here in New York against now President Trump. The status of that lawsuit is that the president has filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit. We filed our opposition. He filed his reply. There was argument in the Manhattan Supreme Court. 
we, the early December, we are awaiting the court's decision in this case. And at this point, I want to introduce one of my personal heroes who is litigating this case along with me, and she's really the lead counsel doing a fabulous job, and we're so proud of her and her work, and that's Marianne Wong. Would you stand up, please, because she's here? <laughs> Give her a round of applause, fighting the good fight. David and Goliath, Davida versus Goliath is what I say. So we'll see what happens with that. But at one point, um, the, I'll just say too quickly that there were 58 pages of argument that the president gave in his brief as to why the case should be dismissed. One was legal immunity because he's president. Of course, we responded Paula Jones versus Clinton, Supreme Court said, no man is above the law, including the President of the United States for unofficial acts. We allege this is an unofficial act, defamation, committed, if it was, prior to the election. But another argument was he's President 24-7. He has no time to be sitting in a deposition, giving his testimony under oath. And Marianne responded that... Uh, we're very happy to accommodate the president. We're very respectful of his schedule. Uh, in fact, we're so respectful and accommodating that we would be willing to take his deposition, his testimony under oath, between rounds of golf at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> we'll see what happens. hear more from Gloria Allred discussing how she sees the impact of the Me Too movement after the break. If you're in New York City, please come to our weekly screening series, Stranger Than Fiction. Every Tuesday, we show a documentary at the IFC Center, followed by a conversation with the filmmaker or other special guest. Coming up this season, we'll preview the new series Flint Town that goes inside the police department of the Michigan City convulsed by a water crisis. We feel inadequate because we don't have the manpower we used to have. There's just not enough of us. Community, they had a complete lack of trust in us. A complete lack of trust. Are they pissed? Fuck yeah. Pissed. So if you got the community and the police department at odds, the police department ain't shit. I have a son, and it makes me emotional because, you know, it makes me afraid for him to grow up. Then you throw in there a water crisis. I've definitely been bathing in the Flint water. Don't know how that's going to affect my health. Hours are not civil unrest. I don't think anyone's coming to help us. It hurts, man. It hurts. <laughs> That's what this is about. I mean, show me another group of officers anywhere in America that's having to police under those set of circumstances. I don't think it exists. We'll be previewing two episodes of Flinttown on February 27th, followed by a Q&A with the filmmakers. For more information, go to purenonfiction.net. The New York audience who came out for Seeing All Red included many accomplished women from different fields. 
Gloria gamely took their questions. Here are a few of the more memorable exchanges, starting with Dr. Lippy Roy. I'm an internal medicine physician. I specialize in addiction medicine. I can't thank you enough for advocating on behalf of survivors of sexual assault, sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the film, you talk about like stigma. A mm-hmm. big, a major role uh, of mine right now is really advocating for my patients who really struggle with uh, addiction. But the root causes, it's not, it's not the drugs. It's actually the p- underlying pain and suffering. And mm-hmm. um, in my previous role as chief of addiction medicine at Rikers Island, and this data won't surprise you, 99% of the women that are behind bars experience some form of trauma, right? Sexual assault and whatnot. And um, as as a woman of color in medicine, um, medicine, uh, with all the advances that it's made, it still remains fairly hierarchical and patriarchal. And, um, and I just wonder, now that for women like me that are in, I guess, somewhat leadership positions, you know, that are facing pushback and some, you know, uh, and you've clearly faced decades of, I imagine, being called a lot of names and uh, just facing a lot of resistance and pushback and being stonewalled. What kind of advice would you give in terms of just developing tools for, like, resilience and pushing forward? Well, of course, if you're being criticized, it must mean you're doing something important or nobody would bother talking about it. Um, so, I mean, I think perspective is important, and it is always hard for the pioneers, in a sense, the token women, the first women, or the women who are not in the majority in the workplace, whatever that particular workplace is, because then, in a way, they're always being tested. In a way, they're always being asked to be better than the majority, which are often male, in the workplace to prove themselves. And it's really unfair, that is the way it is. So, I mean, for me, my perspective is what the suffragists went through. And they were, I mean, in England, they, they, they fasted, they lobbied, they picketed, they were taken to jail. There they fasted, they were forcibly fed through their noses. They, some of them uh, died. One woman threw herself in front of the king's horse to, show, to demonstrate that women, didn't have the right to vote, and they should have the right to vote. And, you know, families broke up, and, you know, cigar butts were burned into their rear ends as they marched down the street. It was, what they suffered, it was just incredible. And they did it because they were, they understood they were on the right side of history, and that women should not be second-class citizens, they shouldn't be disenfranchised, they shouldn't be subordinated, they shouldn't be denied the equal pay that they deserve. They shouldn't be sexually harassed. They shouldn't be battered. They shouldn't be sexually abused. Their children shouldn't be sexually abused. And on and on, they knew what they were all about. So I'd say just have perspective, understand that you're doing the right thing, and you're making it easier for someone else. Unfortunately, you're paying the price of sexism. But, you know, the suffragists also said you know, that women who are not willing to risk the displeasure of men are never going to do anything meaningful for women's rights. So we just have to be strong and, and soldier on, and I just commend you on having gone through medical school and helping people who are addicted to essentially get their lives back and to deal with the pain and the trauma, which, as you said, is at the source of the addiction. So I say, you know, a lot of pain, we all have pain in our life, we all have challenges. None of us are spared, none. And 
So some of us take that pain and we just turn it inward and it becomes very self-destructive. People become depressed, they go on drugs or alcohol or both to tranquilize themselves out of the pain, escape. I say, you know, just take that pain and turn it outward and make it a source, use it as a source of energy. I don't say take that pain and suppress it. It's a good source of energy, that rage. So turn it out and turn it into constructive action to win change, you know, to lobby in the legislature for more laws, to, you know, organize on the internet, to do, you know, what Mother Jones said, don't agonize, organize. And you can do that in your life. Everybody can do it. Everybody can contribute in some way. None of us can do this alone. We all have to do this together in whatever way, whether it's write checks, devote your time, do both, mentor others coming up in your occupation, in your profession. Everybody can take positive steps for change. And you will find that you, as, we said, as they said in the women's marches, one of the slogans was for the last women's march, which was last month, you are the leaders you have been waiting for. A student in the audience asked how the Me Too movement can create structural change in Hollywood. You know, we each have to do what we can do, and I think the voices of people speaking out, taking action, and the consequences imposed on those who are accused, um, I think that they're helping to win change. I'm, I'm a, also, besides an attorney, I'm a, a Screen Actors Guild member, and so I spoke the union reached out to me and asked me to speak, which I did in Los Angeles a few months ago when this whole scandal broke, talked about what people can do. But I think that this, but SAG-AFTRA, Producers Guild, Directors Guild, Writers Guild, you know, all of the guilds are actively now assessing what they can do. And I understand that in New York as well, that has happened. So I think they are looking for action elements and not just, you know, not just talk. And so I don't think it's ever going to be the same again in the entertainment community. This is not to say sexual harassment will stop or sexual abuse will stop. There are many names out there. I know many more names that have not been made public uh, for many reasons. Of course, I'm not going to make them public unless... Just one, just one. No. <laughs> Yours is not on the list, I promise. But you, you, you can sleep tonight. But, um, but you know, it is, you know, it's, it's a process. Nothing comes quickly except the Internet. Uh, I mean, but in life, we just have to keep pushing. Like, push that rock up the hill. Like the Sisyphus, we just have to keep pushing that boulder. And the process, uh, the journey is very important too. So just each in our own way, doing what we can do. The final audience question came from the artist Natalie White, who's a former All Red client and an activist for the Equal Rights Amendment. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit on the status of the ERA because 80% of Americans believe that women already have equal rights in the United States Constitution. So I was wondering if you would be so great as to tell the audience just in case they don't know. Yeah, and speaking of, thank you for that question, Natalie. And, you know, it is, 
you know, people ask me, well, what do I think is the most important legal issue? And I do think it is the addition of the Equal Rights Amendment to the United States Constitution, which simply says that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Now, it took us 72 years to win the right to vote. The addition of the 19th Amendment suffrage to the United States Constitution, and by that I mean the right to vote for women, it took us 72 years. We didn't win it, nobody gave it to us because nobody ever gives us any rights and nobody ever has, nobody ever will. We had to fight to win it. So from 1848 to 1920, finally we fought and we won it. And then in 1923, Alice Paul said, we have to finish this. We need to put women in the Constitution, not just the right to vote, but we need to be equal, guaranteed equal rights in the Constitution. Hence, she proposed the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution. Fast forward, now it's been approximately 95 years. We have been fighting to win the addition of the Equal Rights Amendment to the United States Constitution. Do we have it yet? No. Why does it matter? Lots of reasons, but let me just give you one, which is we do not have equal rights under the law, and those few statutes, namely laws, in which we are guaranteed equal rights could be repealed any time, and you all know what I'm talking about, by people who have agendas to keep women subordinated and stereotyped and denied their rights economically and in every other way. So we now have about, let's see, is it 36 out of 38 states? I was just in Utah in Park City for Sundance for the film, and so I spoke at, at the Respect Rally, which was the equivalent of the Women's March. You did great job. Raise your hand if you were in the, in the Women's March in New York last time. Fantastic, thank you so much for that. So we had that Respect Rally in Utah, and I urge them, those who came to the rally in the snow and the freezing weather, um, to get out there in Utah and get the legislature to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment in Utah, which of course is, even, is being denied a hearing. That's what politicians do when it's too much of a hot potato for them. They don't want to vote against it. They don't want to vote for it. They don't want to vote on it. So they just like don't give a hearing to it. But you know, the ERA is one of the few uh, proposed amendments to the US Constitution that has a, had a deadline put on it that had to be passed by a certain date. And if it wasn't passed by the certain date, it was too late. So what we need now is to remove the deadline which passed for the which has expired for the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. We need to remove that deadline and then get, I think it's two more states, to ratify so that we can enjoy the passage and the protection of the Equal Rights Amendment to the United States Constitution. Do you agree? Yeah. All right, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. So we need to keep talking about it. Natalie's been going from state to state and walking and marching and picketing and doing all kinds of things, which I won't describe, but you can find them on the internet. And, um, and we're just really proud of you. And you know, it's gotta be kept alive because nothing happens if we don't talk about it. 
as you talk about this year of empowerment and, uh, you know, uh, kind of cataclysmic change in awareness of things that you've been fighting for for many decades, I wonder if, if that awareness is seeping through in meaningful ways in your practice, in the courtroom or in, you know, other kind of legal interactions uh, that you have. I mean, maybe it's too early to say, but I, but I wonder if you're feeling that yet. Actually, uh, yes, I am. I actually just came from Miami to um, and, uh, speaking at the National Trial Lawyers, and lawyers are very concerned. There are all kinds of legal issues, but, you know, uh, due process, you know, for the men who are accused, but, you know, also... That's at the top of their list. Well, it is, and, you know, anyway, I, I raised the issue of what if a member is accused, what are you going to do? But anyway, I'm just, that's the way I am. This was kind of disturbing to them, but you know, I say if you, you know, if, if what I'm saying, as we say, does not embarrass you or disturb you or upset you, then if it does, then you probably needed this more than anyone. So I think they needed that more than anyone, but they were very good natured about it. Uh, anyway, the, the the issue is this: there are many legal issues coming out now, but the women are speaking out. Some are having confidential settlements. We do a lot of those. And then the legislatures want to ban certain confidential settlements. And I say, no, you shouldn't restrict a victim's choices. And there's all kinds of issues. And the men are saying, look, I should have a trial. Nobody went to the police. And nobody reported this. And I haven't been prosecuted criminally. And I have, there's no civil lawsuit against me. So why should I lose my job? All these are legitimate questions, OK? They're all legitimate questions. And I can't say that I have all the answers, but we have to all, you know, we have to work on this. But I am proud of the people who decide they want to speak what they say is the truth about their life. The reason we have the lawsuit against President Trump is because truth matters. And that's what that case is all about. It really does. Women are, women are people of value. Their reputation matters. Their lives matter. If their businesses are targeted because they are defamed, that matters. If they're hurt in any way, it matters. And, you know, actually in many places that's a pretty radical thing to say. And, you know, the lives of people who are gay and lesbian matter. Everybody deserves respect and dignity. But we have to fight for this. Nobody gives us this. So I, I just want to say how really appreciative I am of Netflix uh, for putting, they were very supportive of this film. And it's been, you know, three years that they've been following me and just decided to put this out even before the whole Harvey Weinstein and all everything, you know, uh, started happening. And it's just an amazing convergence of events. And I'm so happy they're translating it into 25 languages so that, and it will be seen all over the world, I think in 120 countries. And I, uh, my hope is that it will inspire and empower people who care about equal rights for women and minorities to stand up and say, I can do that. I can do that in my country. I can march like all the brave marchers uh, in, in, in New York City and Los Angeles and small towns all over the United States and many countries around the world. I can seek change. I can speak my truth to power. I can do all that. And that will help 
to be a catalyst for change. It's not the only thing that matters, but everything we can do matters because we all know now how much we have at stake. For many of us who didn't know before, we now know, and now we have to do something about it. I want to thank Gloria Allred for joining me at Stranger Than Fiction. The film Seen Allred, directed by Sophie Sartain and Roberta Grossman, is now playing on Netflix. Thanks to our team. Series producer, Sarah Modo. Sound mixer, Tom Micah. And web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.